Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. Hey there, this is Nick. I'm based in LA for the next few months, so I figured we'd do something new and do a whole series about the LA venture and LP ecosystem. We're starting with Jeff Morris Jr. today, and then we have a great series of guests over the next few months. So I hope you like it. Jeff Morris Jr. is the founder of Chapter One, a first check Web3 fund based in LA. He was previously VP of product at Tinder and started his career as head of growth at Zarly and before that as an agent at UTA. Jeff, thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it and very much looking forward to this conversation. We're in Jeff's insane, I don't know, sports memorabilia room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is my first stage. We're in uh, Santa Monica and yeah, my wife and I have created this it's it's basically a tribute to like all of our high school little league photos and she was a cheerleader and and we've surrounded it with other people more famous people's jerseys and autographs and letters so it's pretty pretty cool space yes and my two favorites are john daly hitting a golf ball with a cigarette in his mouth and uh old school andre agassi with his his i'm not sure if that was real hair that might have been fake hair that was probably probably the wig when he uh started to, to bald early early wig stage. Well, anyway, thank you so much for for having us and, and doing this with us. And yeah, I think just to start, tell us a little bit about yourself and background, where you grew up, where you started your career. Definitely. So yeah, I grew up in the area. I was five minutes from Palo Alto, kind of always interested in tech, but more so interested in typical high school and kind of like things you do when you're growing up. So played played a lot of basketball. I did spend a lot of time on AOL and kind of in chat rooms and yep was was an eBay collector growing up, so you can kind of see that in this room, but ended up going to UCLA for undergrad. I studied English, so no career path in, in venture in mind at that point. Um, then went to USC Film School afterwards and I thought I was going to be a, a producer and then quickly, quickly realized there were probably better better ways for me to, to spend my time. And this was probably around 2008 when um, Twitter started to become a thing and spent just a lot of time on Twitter kind of networking and getting to know people within tech and moved back to the Bay Area in 2010 and started my career. I think we're probably same. I think we're almost exactly the same age, actually. So I re- also remember the early AOL chat room days. I actually often tell a story where I did some, I misbehaved in some chat room <laughs> and AOL called my parents. Wow. I don't know if you remember that, but like they were the internet, <laughs> right? And they were like, they called my parents and were like, some user related to your home, like misbehaved in a chat room. And if you do that again, we're going to turn off your internet. <laughs> like they could just turn off your internet. So I got yelled at my parents and I was very well behaved <laughs> in every chat room That's after hilarious. that. But like, I've, I tell like my little brother and little sister, I'm like, you know, they used to be able to just, or even like terrible Reddit threads or whatever, <laughs> like they used to be able to just turn it off. And obviously they, they can't do that anymore. But anyway. 
And so 2010, and that led you to Zarly? I was, yeah. So and was, you spent a very short stint in, we were just talking about this, mailroom at UTA? I went to UTA. I was on, I skipped the mailroom largely. I was there for a day because I wanted to work on the digital team, which was right. primarily focused on YouTube creators and helping them expand their careers to, to TV and film. And that was very early YouTube days, presumably. Very early. Like this was yeah. not the job that any, anybody wanted at the agency. Right. And they right. gave us the worst office. And But I thought it was a cool place to, to kind of hang out. And yeah, the move back up north, I guess my time up north being the barrier didn't last very long because Zarly actually hired me and I had to move to Kansas City just to, to kind of get, get started. So I was in Kansas City for a year and went to New York. Um, hmm. Like opening up markets for them. And just so that maybe people that don't remember, Zarly was like one of the <laughs> first on-demand kind of labor marketplaces, no? Yeah. TaskRabbit and the same, right? TaskRabbit was like the maybe major competitor. Those two were kind of at, at war with each other. Exactly. We, yeah. we thought our competitor was Craigslist and little did we know. And then we also were starting around the same time as Uber. And so we were doing a lot of rides to the airport and we were really confident that we were going to beat everybody and be this meta marketplace, which hmm. obviously the, the verticalized marketplace is one in the end, but, um, yeah, that was, that was, it was a really exciting company. We raised too much money too fast and made so many mistakes and have still think about that a lot. So it's a great. What were some of the big mistakes or maybe even, even more specifically like, and you were a PM there. I was originally on the marketing team and then did all performance marketing. And so I yep. um, ended up doing a lot of growth marketing in, in the end. And what did that look like then? And what were maybe now, you know, having spent all the time at Tinder and we'll, we can talk about that, like what were maybe some of the big fuck ups or <laughs> lessons learned that you would the, maybe take back or, or helped with your time at Tinder? There were so many. We, we launched on day one with, we were U.S., the entire U.S. we launched with. And so we didn't have any location base go to market. And then we didn't pick, as I mentioned, a vertical. So you can imagine day one, you open up a request marketplace because buyers could request anything they wanted and just the, the long tail of requests that we couldn't fulfill. Right. And so our fulfillment rate was about 8% and relative to the Ubers of the world, retention just sort of started to tank a bit. Mm. It was a ton of fun. Like I have some really fun launch day stories. Probably the best story I've told us before is Ashton Kutcher was one of our investors and he he was testing out the platform and he requested a rabbi to arrive at his house within 24 hours. And so I picked up the phone and called like all of my Jewish friends in, in LA and just so happened that one of the people I went to film school with, his wife is a rabbi. And so she showed up at the, at the house. But again, like you can imagine like that was what we were doing. It wasn't right. anything like strategic on the supply side. Yep. And I remember at some point, maybe TaskRabbit and Zarly, like, you then at some point created the kind of more specific categories and verticals, no? Yeah, and that was largely a response to TaskRabbit. And so we started, okay. and then just our request volume was largely home services. So yep. house cleaning, moving, you know, mowing my lawn, like, yep. but it definitely, it was great as a team because we were like, we had clarity around the verticals, but it also kind of, I guess it was like less, less, like it was a less grand vision. <laughs> Where mm -hmm. we, we went from like this, we we're going to beat Uber and Airbnb to, you know, now, now our main competitor is TaskRub and like, we're not yep. sure if either of these companies are going to become big, kind of big public companies. Right. How did it end? So I, I ended up leaving after three years and Zarly, I, uh, 
lasted for 10 years and then they just got acquired by, I'm not remembering the name, but it's, it's basically an Australian version of, of like a home service marketplace. I was amazed at how long they, they persevered. And, and then TaskRabbit, I think, ended up... I think they got bought by Kia. Did they? Yeah, that sounds about right. Kia. Yeah, we could be wrong. We'll, we'll <laughs> double check that or cut it from the podcast <laughs> if we're wrong. Okay, so how did you get, how did you link up with Tinder? And you spent a while at Tinder, no? I spent over four years at Tinder. Yeah. And so yeah. it was, so I guess post Zarly, I spent a ton of time in kind of the product hunt community and building mm-hmm. products and teaching myself how to, and I went to General Assembly and learned how to, how to do back end and front end web development. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was launching a ton of products and I caught that Tinder on their, their product team was three people at the time. And so I kind of thought it was going to be a quick job because I guess when you, that brought me back to LA, I should say I was in the Bay at that time, but I just didn't have like any expectations for this being like the job and then showed up and was amazed at how, like how much we still had to figure out. And that was incubated inside of IAC, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right? It was like IAC. Kind of a and weird then, origin story. And then they spun it out. They, so it was a IAC and the match is below IAC right. and then, or I guess they're part of the, they were part of the umbrella yep. and it was incubated at, at match. And so. We always had that kind of influence. Match Match has over 50 dating properties in their portfolio. So mm-hmm. there was definitely some like tribal knowledge that helped us. But Tinder was such a freak of nature success story. Like yeah. we were all really fortunate to be there because we had product market fit, but we didn't have a ton of, I guess we didn't have a ton of like operational rigor at the time. And so yep. we really started to figure out monetization was, was what I focused on. And we went from- So you came in, no-, no no like zero dollars in revenue effectively there were they had rolled out tinder plus and it was we were doing 20 million dollars in revenue and so it was like we had the idea of subscriptions and we knew with our scale we were going to be able to monetize monetize tinder at some point we didn't know i don't think any of us had any idea the scale we would get to because there just weren't like comps in mobile at the time for subscriptions yeah. And we ended up, I remember our, our goal, our goal was to get to like two or 3 million subs. And then once we hit that, it became like a conversation around 5 million and then 10 million. And we got, like when I left, we were on eight, but we were doing about $1.3 uh, billion in, in wow. revenue, mostly subscriptions wow. and wow. had, had become the top grossing app. I feel like the, the historically the, the, I feel like the knock on dating apps, and maybe this is also why we haven't invested in any of them, but it's just like. And you talked about churn at Zarly. Yeah. Like the churn is just sort of gnarly, so to speak. Yeah. And you like can't retain people. It's this like constant leaky bucket. Like how did you maybe think about that and solve for that within a product context? Yeah, I think we solved for it by one, like there was a pretty high willingness to pay. So we ran A-B tests and our top subscribers were happy to pay over $40 a month. And so we knew we had like, four or five months to really monetize them in each kind of like each like visit they would they'd be they'd stick around for four four or five months and then go as subscribers and go probably like they met someone and mm-hmm. then most relationships don't don't work unfortunately <laughs> right. for for right. the world probably good for tinder and and we would have we'd have subscribers who would resub like 10 plus times and so when we looked at mm. our when we looked at revenue we really looked at the split between new subs and resubs and it was resubs was a huge percentage of of, mm. of that monetization group. Right, right. Any other major like product learnings or new parts of I don't know revenue creation there that or even even things that maybe you 
prop from Sarley. Yeah, I think I think we tried to be really just thoughtful about when we ask, like the paywall overload thing is real. And so we paid a lot of attention to designing just a great user experience where people weren't bombarded by paywalls. I think honestly, if you open Tinder right now, like some of that has changed. And as you mm. become a public company, the quarterly demands to grow the mm. business increase. And one way to do that is to become more, I guess, like aggressive with paywalls. But we, we were really thoughtful. Everything we did was went through a des- design review. Every paywall we, we released was our VP of d- design and I worked on. And so we took monetization really seriously. It wasn't an afterthought. Right. I tried to apply like a really product design driven view of how we kind of like engage with, with customers. When Do you think that was driven by Match and IAC? Like, do you think if you were, I guess if you were just a, Tinder was a, quote unquote, normal startup. Yeah. Raising money from venture. Do you imagine like the focus on revenue and monetization would have come way, way later? I think it probably could have. Yeah. And also just being in LA, you probably know this from New York, like LA entrepreneurs and founders think about faster. I think than right. barrier people. And I think it's because you, you had at the time you had less venture capital in those markets. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like you needed to survive and so i think in our case it probably was though we were becoming a large part of the match portfolio and they had ipo plans and we were going to be a probably the we were going to be the largest right. revenue driver right and so and probably the most meaningful growth asset by far yeah there. yeah and so yeah you, f- you feel those you feel that pressure at times and that's always like the everyone says like i want to start like you probably see this pitch a lot like i want to start the next iac and that's it's a really the shared services model is very unique and, and powerful, but you also have to just be aware of like the trade-offs yep. sometimes. How can I, I have a maybe slightly more personal question, yeah. but like how were people there compensated? Like, was it in match stock or IAC stock or some other thing? Like how did you basically like recruit and retain people? Yeah, we had Tinder equity that converted to match equity at the, at the point of IPO. Okay. And then we had match equity, which was, we everyone had um, a combination of equity and a lot of people had RSUs too. So mm-hmm. it was actually pretty cool because we had, um, a lot of people made great, they had great outcomes even post IPO because our RSUs were still, they were probably valued at what like a, a great series C company would be valued now, but they were mm-hmm. liquid being like, you know. So it was like some combination of like basically public market or soon to be public market stock and like also direct like startup stock effectively in Tinder. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, famously, you know, that the price of that IPO conversion has been, there's been like a lot of discussions on that and even some, some things you've probably seen in terms of lawsuits, but in terms of like how many shares the Tinder people got in match in what the, what the fair evaluation was. Right. So that's been kind of a hot topic, but, but yeah, we found that recruiting was, was also the size of Tinder. I love the metric like revenue per employee is, is always a fun one to think yeah. about. And or revenue per engineer, a lot of yeah. a lot of the big tech companies use. Yeah. And I always felt like we were under I mean, everyone always feels like they're under resource, right? But we were actually like we really felt that way, being a public company with less than two hundred employees and yeah. yeah. And then our our product team design team were were really, really small by design. Probably similar to Snap. Like I know Snap has Mm-hmm. famously 
a very small product and design team and they, they still report directly to Evan, but right. it, was, it was always a pretty small team. Yeah. What are, what are, what are, what are a lot of those people doing now? Gosh. I mean, some people are, are hanging out on the beach. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people actually went and some people tried to start companies and some people are still doing that. We had a lot of people who, who I guess went to, some went to Facebook, some went to kind of other consumer social companies. We could do a better job of being like a, a mafia or a network because it's hard to create that connectivity post kind of with, with, with kind of the movement. But yeah, for the most part, people are, are still kind of working on product teams and design teams at different companies. So how did you transition and decide to become an investor? Which I assume <laughs> was maybe started out as like angel investing. It was angel. Yeah. So yeah. we started angel investing in 2013 and then was even pre-Tinder. This is pre-Tinder. Yeah. Okay. I didn't have a ton of capital to do that. And so I was like really stretching if I could write like a 15K check. And I did that yep. a couple of times. And then yep. I was more so doing like one to five K checks on yep. AngelList. Mostly in LA or just, was there like a specific category, maybe consumer or just it was, people you knew or like what, maybe what was the earliest version of Jeff Morris Jr.'s angel? Honestly, strategy? it wasn't, it wasn't super strategic or thoughtful. It was like, I remember someone pitched me a, uh, SaaS tool when I was working at Zarly and they were Stanford PhDs and I said, can I invest? I, I couldn't implement it at the company, but I wanted to invest. So it was very coincident. Like it, there, it just sort of happened. And then I guess when there came a point when I was doing Angelus, I was investing in other people's syndicates and, and I thought it'd be really interesting to do that myself. And so I, mm-hmm. that was my first experience kind of investing in other people's capital and probably did like 15 to 20 SPV investments and built up one by one trying to recruit LPs to back my syndicate through yep. LinkedIn, email, everything else. And then there came a point and I, I was also kind of the, the next step was being a scout for Index Ventures in 2017 and doing mostly crypto at the time. And so we did a ton of crypto. Um, was that with Otherwise? Or or sorry, at the time, I think it was called Magnetic. That's Magnetic, yeah. Yeah, with Terrence. Mine was, or maybe the Nina was. Um, person after Terrence, yeah. And Magnetic was a really cool program because it was. It's a great product. Oh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, in my class was like Dylan Field from Figma, mm-hmm. Josh Gibson from NerdWallet, you know, as a fun. And then just a ton of other people who were helpful. And there was a lot of collaboration, which was yeah. pretty cool. Terrence Rohan, maybe will yell at me <laughs> saying this, runs this thing called Otherwise Now, which is a decentralized oh, really cool. kind of fund for some amazing founders are in it. That's great. Um, I'm not sure he, he publishes who, but he had started Magnetic yeah. at Index, I think in probably maybe 2015, 2016, and then left to do Otherwise. And But I don't think a lot of people know about it, Magnetic, but it was a great group of founders. Yeah. And it was like, would you call it a scout? I guess it was a scout fund, but it, it had... Felt like a diff- slightly different vibe. It was a scout fund. I think the structurally what they did that created more community was, I don't know the current state of scout funds, but we had our own carry in terms of the deals we did, but there was a shared shared carry pool where we would get exposure to other people's. Yep. And so that, that created like group incentives to work together. Yeah, I think that, that model is really cool. It's also just amazing how many angels and investors essentially were launched on AngelList. That, like, I, that was yeah. kind of transformative. I can honestly say that I would not be a, a VC if AngelList didn't exist. Maybe I would have been, but it's certainly not how, how like, 
it it has it accelerated yeah. the kind of process learning. What were some of the early learnings? What were some of the worst investments that you made? Oh man, you don't have to name names no. or companies, but I think I think you know some of the probably the worst ones were just like I did some gov tech deals that I didn't quite understand the go to market for selling to local governments. You know, I did some in in autonomous driving that I probably wasn't mm-hmm. like. It was probably outside of my strike zone in terms of 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 what I'm great at, and so I think yeah, I qu- I quickly like realized that I needed to f- identify what I was uniquely good at as an investor and try to focus a little bit more and not do anything that involve deep tech or health or bio, like just things that are outside of my my yep. area of focus. Yep. So you said you did some crypto stuff at that time. I did. Um, I said the one SPV I did that was crypto was Dharma, and then through the index scout fund, they basically brought me in to be like a crypto scout. And so I did, the graph was really the driver I did through that, that fund, which that fund, the fund was marked at like a 40 X. It's probably a lot less. It's probably like 20 to 25 X right now, um, based on how the, the graph has moved, but that magnetic fund. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those, yeah, again, <laughs> not, not to, not to totally blow up Terrence's spot, but some of those early magnetic and otherwise funds I've heard have been really, really it's good. It's pretty wild. And then Person as an Angel did uh, Dapper, the seeds of Dapper and Compound Finance and Blockfolio, which ended up getting acquired by FTX. But I was doing doing a lot of crypto at the time and then it raised my first fund in 2019. And we can get into that, but LPs did not want to hear anything about crypto at the time. And so had a really tough, I think I pitched the idea that I was going to do a lot of crypto maybe for like a week. And I was like, shit, I'm not going <laughs> to... This is not going to be. This isn't going over well. Um, yeah. And so. We had yeah. we had similar experiences at Notation. <laughs> so how did you decide to go or maybe formalize it, leave Magnetic and formalize your own fund? And um, curious what, yeah, what the strategy pitch was at the time. You were a solo GP, I assume. Yeah, I was a solo GP yeah. and it was, I guess I, I ended up fully investing in the index fund and I was getting ready to leave Tinder and I'd seen a few other people launch Angelus funds as using their back office and literally I remember I was like I had like a couple free hours at work and I just launched a venture fund on AngelList and I emailed all of my LPs who were my syndicate backers and I think I had a deck I'm not even sure if I had a deck and I I I think we had like a million dollar a million dollars in commitments pretty quickly but which wasn't a huge amount but it was like enough to be like wow Mm -hmm. I can go this is an excuse to 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 do investing full time, and so I ended up deciding to 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 raise a larger fund. It ended up being closer to ten, and so it wasn't huge, but it was enough where, you know, I could do this full time and pay myself a, a some salary and um, yeah. start to think about doing this full time. Did you look for partners and collaborators, or did you think about teaming up with other people? I did a a, a little bit. For because I was still, I mean, it's now it's almost like becoming market standard, but like not to, yeah, not <laughs> not to diminish any of the any of the that process yeah. or the feat of raising a fund as a solo GP, but it is becoming much more common in market. That first one maybe a little bit less common. How long ago was that? That was 2019. It, it definitely was okay, less so common. A few years ago, yeah. yeah. Like I remember my cohort of solo GPs, it was kind of a new thing. It was like when Nikhil. Yep. Kind of came up with the idea of what a solo GP is or yep. a solo capitalist. Um, yep. And so I actually had a lot more people approach me 
to partner after I'd raised the fund who some of them would have been great partners, but once you, once you're kind of off and running, it's really hard to, to, to stop and, and kind of do the partner dating. And yep. so it just never lined up. And, and then kind of as, as, as I kept going, Hey, congrats <laughs> on raising the fund. Can I have half your carry? <laughs> yeah. It was kind of, yeah. kind of that. There was one person that, who I really love who wanted me to basically sh- deploy and then we would rebrand and do a whole new fund. But there's something about launching a fund where you have your website up and running, you have a logo, you've got a, you know, an email address and you, it's kind of like your identity. And so mm-hmm. the idea of shutting that down was just didn't really excite me at the time. So solo and you raise the first million on AngelList, which is awesome. You're apparently while you're <laughs> working. And that gives you confidence to like leave and do it. How did you get to the next nine? Um, and the strategy was, hey, I've got this, a little bit of this track record and I invest in like, was it consumer? It was oriented? primarily consumer plus call it like, like prosumer. And so I had uh, early stage, I assume not really leading at that point. Definitely not leading. Although I ended up leading a couple of deals to that fund, but the strategy was pure proof of concept access. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, like my LPs just sort of believed in me to kind of go find like hot deals and get, mm-hmm. get into those deals, which was what, what we did for a period of time. And yeah, I kind of found like what I love to do and it wasn't necessarily chasing like the hottest deal. Mm-hmm. And once you can show some level of access, it kind of gives you some more freedom to go do other things. And right. so that was kind of how fun one there's, there, there are many more, like there's much more nuance to it, but fun one was very much like a story and how we end up deploying the capital and, and kind of what we did with. Yeah. I mean, I think it seems to be certainly like the tryest and truest strategy of like, you raise the fund, you show you can get into great stuff. And then like the next phase is like, I'm the signal. Yeah. They're not the signal. Yep. Now I'm the signal and I can lead. And there's other newer Jeff Morris juniors <laughs> that are trying to get into my stuff at some, at some point. That's at some point, I think like the great fund managers want to be the tastemaker mm-hmm. and you, you frankly stop caring about everyone else's signal and you're, you, you, and, 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 and you do become that signal. It's something I think there's no like quantifiable metric to know you're a tastemaker. It's just like you start to see your relationships change and, and maybe your LP base changes a little bit. I had a lot of venture funds invest in chapter one because okay. they wanted to see what was we were that doing. The, like the largest source of LP capital? Initially, and then I anchored the fund, yep. but initially it was like those venture funds writing kind of these, these they, they weren't huge checks, but maybe, you know, 250K checks was yep. helpful. Yep. Yeah, we actually, Index was in our first fund nice. and, and a bunch of GPs and I'm curious to hear how you've maybe thought of this between fund one and fund two, but we've actually, I don't know, I was going to say not say graduate, but like we've gone our separate ways. Yeah, I get it. And we, we chose not to have VC funds or GPs in our most recent funds. We didn't have that option really in the beginning. Have you kept those? We, with you, we have, we had one fund churn, then we added one more. So like net net, we're at the same number. I think the, I think the the challenging part of this is just like communicating what the relationship is because as you probably know when you're like those funds really want access to deals and they want to be the first introduction but 
when you're helping a founder raise money, it's really up to the founder and yep. you give them like this list of people they can meet through your intros and it's ultimately up to them who, who they pick. And so I see this a lot just with LPs to wanting co-invest or doing directs. And I just had a coffee meeting this morning with, with the, and ha- talked about this. It's really, it's really like, I, like none of us can promise like the yeah. first intro. And it's, and it's quite frankly, it's not in the best interest of the founder. Right. Ultimately to say like, Hey, I've, you know, we can go meet all these firms, but you really should meet this one because they're my LP yeah. or whatever. Right. So, and then I also worry about information access. Yeah. You know, and it's like hard to tell who their investors, what their, what companies they're investors in. And not that like, I mean, quite frankly, like not that like the GPs or VC firms in our first fund, like even really cared yeah. about <laughs> us that much or our companies. But like, I guess I always, I always worried about like the, the headline risk of like a founder calling me and being like, how does this firm know this thing right. about our business? So that always made me like, just, I, I just feel like I struggled to figure out what the right rules were there and how to navigate that. I agree. Yeah. I faced that a little bit when there were corporate venture funds mm-hmm. that wanted that we had conversations like Facebook as an example was a conversation they're obviously like they have their own kind of like experiments team and they they're constantly yeah. testing ideas and in my case like i didn't pursue that conversation they were nice great people like but yeah. just to me didn't feel like the best alignment yeah. for our founders yeah. yeah and to be clear like none of our situations with gps that invested or or firms they were never we never had any major issues yeah. i think it was mostly just like i was scared of those becoming issues basically yeah if that makes sense. So you've kept them. We've kept them for fun too. And honestly, like all of them have been super great. Like, I don't know yeah. for fun three exactly how everything will play out, but, but yeah, it's been for me, like just a good, a good, a good setup and feel like it's hopefully going well for, for all of them too. What were major, any major lessons in fun one that you brought with you to fun two? Or I'm curious how you're, aside from like going from getting into the signal and First, becoming the signal, which I think is very interesting transition. But any any other major differences? I mean, yeah. you can talk about fun too. Is much bigger, and I'm sure there's different portfolio construction and follow on. But maybe just from like an investment style or strategy perspective. Yeah, I think it's always helpful to know your the final number. We didn't know. You know, we started writing checks mm-hmm. when it was like a three million dollar mm-hmm. fund, and so we under size our initial checks. So I'd recommend if you can finish fundraising before you start deploying. I think really like for me, the big transitions have been like really wanting to build a team and not be a solo GP and then really wanting to focus the fund around a vertical. And so, and that came from, I think feeling in fund one, like I was trying to be smart about too many Hmm. different areas. I didn't have, like, I didn't feel like I had any specific edge in the market, although the fun one's gone, gone well. It just felt like, it felt like I was playing more, like I was more like receiving deals and receiving opportunities than like proactively finding them because I knew a market or, you know, a specific area like better than everybody else. And then, yeah, the team thing really came out, like you started with a, a partner, but being a solo GP, there's a lot that people don't talk about in terms of the day-to-day that it's, you know, like, Team sports are fun. I always like be on teams, but even just like service quality to founders, 
I find, I find, and I'm sure some solo GPs do this remarkably well, but I found it very hard to support a portfolio of 40 to yeah. 50 companies as a solo GP. Yeah. Or you're just very thin. It's the, here's a, here's an intro. Here's a, you're not actually like spending real time with anybody. Exactly. And yeah. So we, during fun one, we did a program called product club, which was, we accelerated three companies, one of which was spline, which I'm wearing the hat. I love that program and that process because we like shut down our inbox and said we're focusing mm-hmm. on these three companies for the next 10 weeks and ended up that was the most fulfilling part of fun one mm. because we were actually helping these companies on a daily basis and i kind of got out of that and i started doing all these like access calls again and, and i was just like wow like i can't believe i'm doing this again i want right. to go back to 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 kind of like the product club style investing so yep so fun one was 10, fun two's 50. Fun two's 40, 40 plus um, 40. 20, 20 on the opportunity fund. And so it's about 60. So, okay. And you raised that recently. We raised that um, in Q3 and Q4 last year. Solo founder, but how have you added to your team since then? Yeah. And, and I imagine most of this fund is probably institutional, Sindana and some others. There's mostly institutional, but I guess family offices would probably be the yeah. the largest group of LPs. And how do you meet them? You met them through Fund One? Largely Fund One. I probably could have done a better job of during Fund One, like nurturing those relationships. But Sindana anchored Fund Two. They were fantastic. Just so many great intros and really helped me fundraise. And then, so they introduced you to other LPs as well? They did, yeah. I give them so much credit because it was it was a huge help for me. And I, I think like the family office world is pretty small when you're it's big, but also small in the sense like a lot of the, I got, had a lot of intros from family office to family office. Even now as like a, like one of like the up and coming early stage funds, I find it really hard to navigate the family office world. It's just very opaque. I've never, never figured it out. <laughs> never figured it out. But, you know, I, I think yeah, we're starting to, to kind of become better known. So it's becoming easier, but it's also becoming a larger part of my day. It's probably like, yep at least 25% of my time right now is talking to, to new LPs and we just finish fundraising. Right. right. About the next fund. About the next fund. Everybody yeah. wants to know yeah. every aspect yeah. of, of the strategy and it's like, we just close. And what is it? So two questions. The focus, chapter one, fund two, is Web3. Oh, Web3, yeah. So I want to hear why. We've had that. <laughs> we've had that. We've almost gotten there a couple of times with <laughs> the notation and then pulled back. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear about that decision. Large, I give a lot of credit to different members of the team, but when when we kind of thought about fun two and again this theme of focus and being like more outbound and more specialized, it was pretty clear from our data room and also our backgrounds and areas of interest that crypto and web three were the best places we could spend our time. And then And who's the team? It's myself, one other investor, Mene Azarakis, who came from Facebook, their crypto team. We added a CFO as our third hire, Doug Dyer, who came from Texas Children's. He was an LP for a while. We've since added kind of this full stack, call them like Web3 service partners. And that's been really fun because you get to rethink what Web3 founders actually need. But we added a data scientist from from Twitter, Jameson, who's great. And we've added, we're adding someone on the community side soon. And then some folks on FinOps, but it's been, it's been a, a really fun process. That's cool. So you're, you've built a team and I mean, you don't really have to pitch me Web3, but I'm curious what your Web3 pitch is. And I'm curious how you, 
message that to LPs? I mean, obviously LPs are a lot more open to crypto and Web3 than they were a few years ago. Yeah. But curious how you also like message the evolution of the firm. Yeah, I think we, so chapter one tries to be, I guess our goal as a fund is to be product focused and help with design and kind of go to market. And we, we've seen this gap in Web3 and crypto where there's a lot of enthusiasm, but still just a lot of, I'll call them like really average user experiences. And so the, like the why now made sense for chapter one where, where our backgrounds are actually uniquely positioned to help solve a lot of the usability problems in Web3. And also probably like for the first time, we are actually moving from the infrastructure layer to the app layer where usability will become even more important, probably. That's kind of what we saw too. I mean, in, back in 2017, most of like even the graph and compound, those were, those didn't require like a ton of application layer yeah, product or design work. And so we have moved closer to kind of like mainstream adoption. In fact, I would say we're, we're getting way closer than we think. And, yeah. and so it's been, and then I, I think the pitch to LPs though has become a lot easier. There's still, I think, a huge like education curve in pitching LPs. I think LPs have, are starting to see enough Web3 and crypto pitches where they can distinguish the nuances of what you're trying to accomplish as, as, mm. as a fund, where at least that's yeah, what I'm a lot of the conversations we've had in the past, which, which we, we've thought about raising a crypto fund in the past, the large majority of the meetings, this is two, three years ago, were just, what is crypto? Yeah. What is a blockchain? What is Bitcoin? I heard it's used by drug dealers <laughs> and it sounds like, and I've, and I've, and we've had many of these conversations too, but the, the, the conversations are much more, you know, professionalized today and they're much deeper than they, than they used to be. I mean, we literally had conversations with like endowments <laughs> with like walking in with a presentation around like, how does Bitcoin work? Yeah. Right. And I think most of them are past that. I think we're definitely days. past that. I mean, we're at the point now where it's really about like what part of the stack you're investing and how are you uniquely positioned to win those deals. And I think also kind of like the market mapping of different venture funds is, is much sharper in terms of like who's, who's really building great crypto funds. And so you can kind of use those references to compare what you're doing against those, those other funds too. Yep. So last, last question is just how, you know, you've built this team, you've built this nice brand, you have a bunch of capital behind you now, like the market's nuts. <laughs> like, like, how the hell do you compete even with all the progress that you've made in the last few years? Honestly, this is like an everyday, like wake up in the morning and, and you kind of have to like ask yourself that really hard question, kind of like the why us. And I think we're still at the point where the market hasn't quite become, it's obviously like, like pre-seed and seed can be highly competitive. I would say seed more so than pre-seed. We feel like in, in web three, especially the round structures are, are a little bit more collaborative. They're still highly competitive, but often there are co-lead situations. So a lot of it's about like building strong relationships and alliances with investors we respect. And then on the pre-seed side, it's really like, can you find that entrepreneur or that founder mm -hmm. before, maybe before they know they want to start a company or before, definitely before anyone else, because there's very little information advantage at this point. And so we're just constantly trying to 
to find new founder networks and be more focused about how we spend our time. And and so, yeah. And then I think the, I think the bigger question is just how do we build a team that looks different from legacy funds, which is actually yeah. like pretty easy to do at this point. No knock on legacy funds, but it's kind of hard to, to pivot that. Yeah. That kind of like. Yeah. Once you've hired 12 people from Goldman Sachs and, you know, BCG. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I would say we're, we're always asking ourselves like, how do we, how can we compete with the more of the crypto native funds and really create our own lane where, where we deserve to, to win those, those rounds. Yep. Are you going to hire a full-time discord person? I mean, the community We've manager role is really interesting because it's not, it's probably someone who's been involved with DAO governance, definitely yeah. someone who's built like a zero to one discord community. And every founder we talk with needs some level of community guidance because yep. It doesn't come naturally to everybody. I mean, we try to keep up with it. And it's <laughs> like, you know, you're in 12 different discords and there's like, a lot of these are super active. Yeah. And yeah, like you almost need someone spending all of their time there. I imagine some of the big firms do. That's interesting. So on the investing team, having like a discord. Of- I think so. I mean, we all spend our time in different places, right? And so there probably is alpha from just being in, in every yeah. discord. That's yeah. a cool idea. Yeah. Okay. All right. Don't take it. Or you can, we actually, we could share people. Okay. I think that's, I think that's most of what I took over. I guess what, what last question is just, what does the future of chapter one look like? Or like, what would your best version of it look like in three or five years from now? I think the team, the team will keep growing. We'll add more members of the investment team. It's only two people so far. We'll probably start to verticalize our investors and how, where they spend their time in web three. We're pretty generalized right now. And then, yeah, I really want to build a fund that doesn't have like associates and principals and VPs and investors. Like I want everybody to have some, some like operating skill set where they can really help founders in Mm. some tangible way and to keep the investment team relatively small while just like really building something that, that looks very different from web two because web three founders really do need different, different things. And so trying to be creative around how, how we build the team to, to kind of meet those, those needs. Thank you for taking the time. And I think we've done a few things together. I'm sure, I'm sure we have. Sure we have. And um excited to do more. And thank you. Thanks again for taking the time and also inviting us into your No, this podcast. has been great. I really appreciate it. Really and truly, I listened to the podcast. So it's fun to actually be able to, to participate. So thank you for having me. Thanks. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first-check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.